0: Hello and welcome to Holmes, Borden, and the Watson Papers. This is your host, Chris Dilworth. Thanks for joining me. I want to talk for a minute about Mr. Morse. I know he's come up a few times in the podcast, in other episodes. He plays a bigger role in the next episode or two, and I want to talk about him before we get into the details and talk about exactly what he was doing. I see him as a bit of an idiot savant. That's not a really good term for it, but it kind of catches the flavor in the sense that he's a savant in the sense that he knows how to run a business. He owned a farm. He ran it successfully. He made some money. He made money buying and selling horses. He's not as rich as Mr. Borden, but he's comfortable. He can retire. He doesn't have to work. So he's got some financial acumen, but he's an idiot in the sense that he seems to have no social skill. He's almost autistic or Asperger's or something in terms of the social interaction. And I feel sorry for him because I see him as someone who was destined to be a bachelor and live alone for his entire adulthood. According to reporters who went out to Iowa and interviewed people out there who knew him when he lived out there, They talked about how he suddenly, in his late 30s or early 40s, got it into his head that it was time to get married, so he cleaned himself up, he started wearing nicer clothing, he trimmed his beard, he washed more often, as if that's going to get you married. It was like that was as far as he could go. He couldn't really figure out what to do beyond that, and he seemed to think that that would be enough to magically get him a wife. And I recognize that Iowa, in the 1870s, And maybe the 1880s was a different place than it is now, and it was probably more challenging to meet women and get married. But even so, it's kind of sad that this was how he thought you get married, and this was all he was really capable of doing. And then along the same lines, whoever was telling this story said he came to realize after a year or two that this was fruitless and he went back to his old ways. But there's obviously an endearing side to him, a side to him that does appeal to people. To begin with, he was apparently pretty close to Mr. Borden. Mr. Borden was the one who would talk business with him. Mr. Borden is the one who talked to him about having had a will that was destroyed or lost. Mr. Borden is the one who said to him, I have some land I'm thinking about giving to an old lady's home. Mr. Borden, at least on one occasion, asked Morse what he thought about buying a piece of commercial property in Fall River. What do you think about it, John? What's your opinion? So Mr. Borden trusted him. I think Mr. Borden liked him. And that says something. Now, Mr. Borden didn't have a lot of friends. But even so, I think it means something that he trusted Morse and I think he liked seeing him, at least occasionally. And we know that Morse had a close relationship with Emma. Emma says so on the stand. She testifies to that. And she uses the adjective dear. I think she says, he's always been a very dear uncle to me. And if you think about it, it makes sense. Because if he had moved out west 22 years before the murders, that would be around 1870, give or take. Emma at that point was already 19. Now, Lizzie would only have been 9 or 10 He may have moved out a little earlier than that. It might have been 1865. But Emma was old enough to have developed a relationship with him, to have built a history with him. Lizzie, not so much. But apparently he was important to Emma as well. So think about what a change, how different his life was if we go from August 3rd to August 4th, 1892. August 3rd, he has no idea that Anybody's going to be murdered. He thinks that he's going to stay with the family overnight, just like he has many times before. And then he comes back on August 4th, and there's been a double murder, and his niece is suspected. His headstrong niece that he's not particularly close to is suspected of committing this crime. And that must have been shocking to him. It would be shocking to anybody. And he's got to wrap his mind around that intellectually, and then he's got to deal with it emotionally. Despite this shock, despite the objective evidence that Lizzie was involved, objectively, if you look at it, it certainly looks like she was involved. How did she manage to stay in the house while these two people were murdered and not get attacked herself? Now, admittedly, she claimed she was in the barn, but that's hair splitting. She was basically in the house the entire time or near it. And intellectually, you look at that and that's hard to explain. And he must have, at some level, been aware of that. Now, remember that he had not been included in the long interview on Thursday between Emma and Sherlock that was also attended by Reverend Jubb Watson and Mr. Blunt from the consulate. So he doesn't know the details. All he knows is that Sherlock says, we have reason to believe that Jack the Ripper was working as a ship's doctor in 1890, that he met Lizzie and that he has been involved in these murders and that Lizzie has somehow gotten sucked into this, and that Emma knows something about it. So that's another shock to the system. Now he's getting evidence from these guys who seem to be credible. Reverend Jubb is vouching for them. These English detectives plus an English diplomat who are telling him that Jack the Ripper has gained influence over one of his nieces, and the other niece is caught up in it as well. So I don't know how he was processing this, and I wouldn't blame him if he was staggered by it, if he was just trying to play catch up here and absorb it all. And when I say catch up here, I mean we're talking about the following day, Friday, September 16th. So he's heard about these allegations involving Jack the Ripper the day before on Thursday, and now we're at Friday. You know, he comes over to the rectory on the late afternoon or early evening of Friday, September 16th. But let me talk about Watson and Holmes for a minute. I'll get through them and catch you back up and we'll find ourselves back in the late afternoon with Morse knocking on the rectory door. Let's switch scenes and talk about what Watson and Holmes have been up to. After Emma goes with Jub back to her house, Holmes and Watson have this conversation that I discussed in the last episode, where Watson is saying, I really don't feel comfortable with Emma. I don't think that she's to be trusted. It makes me nervous. And Holmes has explained his position, and Watson can't really refute it. By Friday, he's able to articulate his concerns a little better than he had been the day before. But the problem is that by the time he's ready to explain it to Holmes, Holmes is gone. So what happens is Thursday night when they go to bed, or at least when Watson goes to bed, Holmes is downstairs smoking. Holmes stays up all night, apparently, as far as Watson can tell. And that's not unusual. When Holmes is in the middle of a really important case and he's trying to think things through, it's not unusual for him to go without sleep and just sit and think by himself. It's also his habit not to eat. That's pretty common as well. So he hasn't been eating as of Friday morning. He hasn't eaten. He didn't eat dinner Thursday. He doesn't eat breakfast Friday morning. He looks exhausted. He looks pale. He's worn out. Watson doesn't get much sleep on Thursday night. He wakes up around 2 or 2.30 with a splitting headache. He can't sleep. He gets up for a while, cleans his revolver. He makes sure it's loaded, and after that he puts it back in the luggage. He gets back in bed, and he spends the rest of the night lying there looking at the ceiling. So they're both exhausted Friday morning. Holmes is waiting for Emma to go and visit Lizzie and then come back and report to him, hopefully. He wants Emma to see if she can get some information out of Lizzie as to where these letters and notes might be, the ones that Moriarty wrote to Lizzie. Maybe Emma can get Lizzie to tell her, and he also wants Emma to think on her own where they might be, just in case Lizzie doesn't tell her. He wants Emma to brainstorm, and he has to wait. He has to wait for her to go up and see Lizzie, and then come back and report to him. After lunch, Watson feels awful. He's exhausted, so he goes upstairs and lies down, and he falls asleep, and when he wakes up, it's late afternoon. Say it was around 5, maybe 5.30. He goes downstairs in a bit of a panic. The house is empty except for the housekeeper, who tells him that Sherlock has just left, maybe 10 or 15 minutes before, with Emma. Emma had showed up, apparently had come back from visiting Lizzie, had come to the rectory, talked to Sherlock, and they'd gone off in the carriage, the buggy that Morse had rented at Sherlock's request. They didn't say where they were going. Sherlock left a short note for Watson saying, essentially, I've gone off with Emma I expect to be back later tonight. I took my pistol with me, even though I don't think I'm going into a dangerous situation. I don't want you to worry. I expect to see you when I get back. Please don't go anywhere. And that's it. That's all he has. No. This is typical of Sherlock, and we've talked about this as well. Sherlock doesn't like to tell Watson what he's up to when he's investigating a case unless he's bringing Watson along with him. Once in a while he does, but for the most part he doesn't. And that's because Sherlock doesn't like to float ideas until he's confident that he has the facts to back them up, generally speaking. He also likes to be in control of his own investigations. He doesn't want to leak what he's thinking and have somebody else gum up the works, whether that's Watson or the police. Or anybody else. And I suppose you could say to some degree, Watson has brought this problem on himself because he's behaved occasionally in ways like he had two days earlier when he followed Emma to New Bedford and didn't follow Sherlock's directions. So you can understand to a certain degree why Sherlock doesn't tell him what's going on. The problem is. Watson feels that Sherlock has underestimated the danger in this situation. As a general rule, almost always, if Sherlock recognizes that he's about to go into a dangerous situation, he'll bring Watson with him. And the fact that he doesn't bring Watson is a sign that Sherlock doesn't think it's dangerous. But Watson disagrees. And when I said that he had finally, over the course of 24 hours, was now able to clarify his thoughts and was now able to explain what he was worried about, It had finally occurred to him that Sherlock was now probably as big a threat to Emma and Lizzie as Moriarty was. Moriarty's a threat because he's a financial parasite, because he's got information that can get Lizzie convicted. He's got information that could implicate Emma. He's violent. He's dangerous. But Sherlock's a threat because Emma has talked to him. Emma has told him things. It doesn't matter to Emma that Sherlock has given her his word. Emma's not the sort that trusts people. She's lived in an environment of suspicion, of distrust, of anger, resentment. She has not lived in an environment of happy, trusting, pleasant feelings. It's just the opposite. So she's not inclined to trust anybody. Why would she trust Sherlock when she doesn't know him? And if she doesn't trust him, and he has information that could land her in prison, possibly for life, and lead to her sister's execution— Why would she want him around any more than she would want Moriarty around? Watson thinks that Sherlock hasn't considered this because he's so focused on Moriarty. And he thinks that Moriarty is so evil that he has exercised all kinds of control over these women. And that if you take Moriarty out of the equation, these women are not all that dangerous. Watson sees it very differently. He would say to Holmes, if Holmes was there... These women are cold-blooded, they've shown virtually no emotion about these murders, and these are the most heinous, horrendous, god-awful murders that you and I have come across outside of the Whitechapel case. So why would you think that they are shrinking violets, doormats, victims of this guy? They're bad news by themselves. Don't underestimate them. But because Sherlock has gone off and hasn't left Watson any idea as to where he's gone, Watson is left alone in this big house, climbing the walls. Reverend Jubb is out doing some kind of church work, and all Watson has for company is this housekeeper, and obviously he can't talk to her. So fortunately for Watson, about 15 minutes after he finds out that Sherlock has left, Morse arrives. The housekeeper lets him in, and Morse comes into the study and finds out that Emma's gone, Sherlock's gone, Reverend Jubb is off somewhere. Morse tells Watson he's there because he's been feeling increasingly uneasy over the previous 24 hours. Now, as I said at the start of this episode, obviously it was a huge shock to him to learn that the Ripper had wormed his way into the Borden family and was exerting influence over these two sisters. And that was something that would have upset anybody. When Sherlock sent him off to get the horse and buggy, and then when he talked to him after Morse delivered the horse and buggy, on both occasions, Sherlock made it a point to say to Morse, you need to be on the lookout to see if there's anything unusual in Emma's behavior, anything at all. You need to be watching her carefully. This is for her own good. We don't know how much influence Moriarty has over her. We don't know how much influence Lizzie has over her. This is all about protecting Emma. Emma. The best thing we can do for Emma is to catch Moriarty and get him out of the country, and Emma's under an enormous amount of pressure, so I need you to be a second pair of eyes, and you should come back to me if you see anything out of the ordinary or hear anything out of the ordinary. There are two things that Morse wants to tell Watson when he comes that Friday evening. One is, it turns out, that by basically pure chance, while Morse is waiting to have the horse hitched to the buggy at the livery stable across the street from the Borden house in Fall River, attorney Jennings walks up to him. Jennings had been to see Lizzie earlier that day. Jennings was in the neighborhood because she had asked him to stop by the Borden home and check on Emma. So Jennings tells Morse, I just stopped by the Borden house. Emma's not there. I hope she's okay. Have you seen her this afternoon since she's come back from visiting Lizzie? And Morse says, yes, I have. Jennings says, did she seem upset? Because when I saw her today at the jail, she seemed upset. Now, what registers with Morse is that Emma seemed upset during her visit with Lizzie as Jennings arrives and Emma's getting ready to leave. But when Morse tells this to Watson on Friday night, Of course, Watson immediately notices or what registers with Watson is, wait a second, Emma told us yesterday that she hadn't actually gone to visit Lizzie or she'd never made it to the jail, that Moriarty had hijacked her. So what is going on here? So he takes a minute or two to go back over what Morse has said and make sure that Morse isn't confused, that Jennings isn't talking about some other visit, but Morse is adamant that Jennings had been to see Lizzie Thursday afternoon and that when he arrived at the jail and was ushered into Lizzie's cell to talk to her, Emma was there. Emma seemed upset and after Emma left, Lizzie had said to Jennings, will you go back and see her this evening and make sure she's okay and ask her to come visit me again tomorrow, meaning Friday. So Morse is worried because Emma was reportedly upset. Morse doesn't know that Emma has told a different story. To Watson, Holmes, Blunt, and Jubb, because Morse wasn't in the room. He was told to wait in the vestibule. So now Watson sets him straight. That gets Morse even more worried and, needless to say, more confused. And it's just a red flag to Watson. It's He doesn't know exactly what to make of it, but it's not good. Then Morse says, but there's more. Because Jennings had said that Emma seemed upset, and because your friend, meaning Holmes, had asked me to keep an eye on her, I was doing that as inconspicuously as possible yesterday. I was pretending to be acting normal. I was pretending to read the newspaper or read a book or whatever after dinner. But I paid attention to what Emma was up to and she left the sitting room. We'd finished dinner. The maid had cleaned up. The, the maid, who's also the cook, had cleaned up. She'd gone out for the evening. So the only people in the house at that time, probably around 7 p.m., were Morse and Emma. Emma had left the sitting room and gone into the back part of the house That would mean the kitchen and or the side door that leads out towards the barn. She might also have gone downstairs to use the bathroom in the cellar. Morse wasn't sure. But when she got up and left the sitting room, he got up almost instantly and went to the door, the door that was shut, that led into the kitchen, and he listened. He put his ear right up to the door and listened, and he could hear Emma go outside. Now, this is 7 o'clock on a Thursday night. She has no reason to go outside. It's dark or it's getting dark. So he goes into the kitchen and looks out the window and sees her in the backyard. She goes up to the fence at the back of the yard. This fence is six feet high, it's solid boards, and she's poking around looking for something, apparently. He can't see exactly because it's pretty dark, but he can see she's bent over, her head's moving side to side. She's obviously looking for something. Then she reaches, apparently finds what she's looking for, puts her hand in her pocket, and turns to come back into the house. Morse goes back in the sitting room. He waits, and then he hears Emma come back in. There's a pause of maybe 10, 15, 20 seconds. Then he hears the lid of the stove come up and go back down. He assumes that Emma had gone out there, found a note. Apparently, she was looking for one or expecting one, brought it in, read it in the kitchen, and then burned it. He doesn't know what to make of that. Because he didn't sit in on the interview, because he doesn't know the details... He's not sure what it means, if anything, and he's not inclined to believe that Emma is actively involved in the murders or the cover-up, despite what Sherlock told him. That's not what he's inclined to believe. But this is troubling. He didn't bring this news to Sherlock earlier on Friday because he was trying to convince himself there was an innocent explanation. He thought maybe Sherlock had delivered the note. Maybe Sherlock forgot to tell her something and brought it over And he had told her ahead of time, I'll stick a note in the board fence behind your house, the backyard. That's where you can find it. I've been around your house. I've scoped it out. I know the layout of your yard. This is a good place to do it. But the more he thought about it, the less sense that made. Now, in the late morning that day, Friday, September 16th, He had taken a horse and buggy, and he was headed back to Dartmouth, or South Dartmouth, which is where he shared a house with a guy, and he was going to deal with some business matters. He hadn't been doing his regular small side business deals for six weeks since the murders, and he needed to address some of these issues. But he didn't get very far before he turned around and came back, because he was so troubled. And by the time he got back, it was maybe three o'clock. He drives a horse into the driveway of the Borden house, hitches it, goes indoors, and Emma's not there. He expects her to come back from the jail fairly soon. The maid is there. She says, as far as I know, she'll come back soon, but she doesn't come back. She hasn't come back between three and four, which is when he would expect her. Or She doesn't come back by five. And at that point, he starts to worry. And the maid says, I have no idea where she's gone. So that's why he comes over. He gets in the horse and buggy and he drives over to the yard behind the rectory where between the rectory and the barn, he ties the horse up and he comes around, knocks on the door and that's why he was there. So he asks, what should we be doing here? What's going on? Watson tells him that the only reason he can imagine Holmes would leave the house with Emma is that Emma has told him, Holmes, that she thinks she knows where the letters are. She would not have said to him, I think I know where Moriarty is. Holmes would not have gone without Watson. So Holmes still trusts Emma, still thinks that Emma is going to help him get the evidence he needs to track Moriarty down. And other than this... Watson can't think why Holmes would have left with her, why he would have gotten in the carriage and driven off. So Watson says to Morse, where would these letters be if they're not at Second Street? There's a farm. There's a house, right? Isn't there a summer house, a farm? What about that? Morse explains that there are a couple of farms. The Bordens call them the upper farm and the lower farm. The upper farm is the working farm that has a manager who lives on it, and that's the one with the chickens and the livestock and the vegetables. And then the lower farm is really just a vacation house. It's a mile or two away in the direction of Fall River. So if you're coming from Fall River, you would hit the lower farm first, which was the summer house, and then you would pass that and go a mile or two farther down the road and get to the upper farm. Moore says, yeah, there's this house called the Lower Farm and it's possible that they're out there, but I know that Emma and Lizzie haven't been going there ever since they had this argument with their stepmother five years ago. They both refused to go there. Is it possible that Lizzie took something out there or had someone take letters out there and leave them at the farm sometime a week or two before the murders happened? It's possible. It's not that far away. It's only about five miles. Watson asks about the layout. How far is it from the road? Is there a barn that goes with the lower farm? Would Moriarty have been able to drive there before Holmes and Emma, stabled the horse, left the wagon in the barn, shut the door so that Holmes might arrive and not have any idea that someone was already there? Yes, of course. Watson says... I think my friend is in serious danger. We have to get out there. you got to take me there now, immediately. We don't have any time to wait. Watson runs upstairs, grabs his pistol, and they get in the carriage and head out of town. And on the way out, Watson is getting a description of the layout of the house, and Watson is coming up with a plan. And we'll get into that in the next episode. We'll talk about what happens when they get out to the farm. I hope you join me for that. I look forward to it. And until then, take care.